you to our worship team for leading us so well this morning. Uh, as you can see, the message this morning is from John chapter 14, and I would invite you to turn with me there. John chapter 14. It's always good to keep in mind the, uh, the main purpose and main thought of the scripture as we read, and starting in chapter 13 and moving towards chapter 17 in our Bibles, uh, Jesus is having this intimate conversation with his disciples. He's preparing them for his own departure, his own uh, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. And he's seeking to grant to them encouragement and uh, faith in him as, uh, in, and in his words as that event takes place. And, and so far in this conversation that Christ has had with the disciples, he's, he's affirmed some, um, some things that were not settled in their hearts and, uh, in fact, won't be until after the resurrection. But the most significant one is that he and the Father are one. When they saw him, they saw the Father and so he makes that transition and says, as you've believed in God, believe also in me. We are the same. The, Jesus is God revealed, as that song so well uh, put it, the new song. He also encouraged them to know that as he returned back to the Father, that he would be simply going ahead of them. In fact, he would precede them and would come and take them, and they would also be with him wherever he is. He explains that upon his departure that he's going to equip them, and exactly how he's going to equip them is going to become more clear this morning, but he's going to equip them so that they will do even greater works than he's done, in the sense that the gospel will be open to all the nations and they will be able to go to the entire world and preach the gospel. And God is going to save people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And he promises in, their, in his absence that as they pray to him to the, at the Father's right hand, anything they ask according to his name, according to his will, he will do it. Now today the conversation continues. By rights, a preacher shouldn't break up something like this. This is like you and I having a conversation and stopping and then coming back next week and trying to pick up where we left off. But uh, it's probably not likely that you would stay here for three or four days as we expound on these chapters. So preachers have to find a right way where to stop and where to end. And uh, the structure itself gave me the indication that I needed where to start. And perhaps I'll explain that. I don't know if I will or not. But uh, perhaps I'll explain that. But if you would have John 14 open, and we're going to read verses 15 to 31. 15 to 31. 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you will believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we come to you this morning as we open your word before our eyes. And we pray with, this, with the hymn writer of old, Heavenly Spirit, gentle Spirit, oh, descend on us, we pray. Come, console and control us. Christ most fair to us, portray. Come to cheer us, be thou near us. Kindle in us heaven's love. Keep us burning, humble yearning. Dwell in us, O heavenly dove. Amen. I have found that as I have studied this uh, conversation, that the questions that the disciples asked have been most helpful to me, and I would suggest that they are there, that 
it would be helpful to you. It's always helpful when a person is teaching and someone asks a, a question that really could have been on the mind of everyone. In this case, it probably was. And ask the question, it brings clarity. It tends to, this isn't always true, but it tends to help us see what the main point is too. And in looking at this passage and asking, Lord, what is the main point? What is, what is the preaching theme? My attention was drawn to Judas's question. You can see it in verse 22. Judas, and setting it aside from Judas Iscariot, a different Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? The fact is that this disciple picked up on something that Jesus was saying in that he was promising his presence or as they will come to know and we already know because we're way on this past part of Calvary. We're now past Pentecost. We have insight today that these disciples, this was new to them. This is, this is new knowledge to them. This disciple picked up, probably on behalf of others too, that Jesus was saying that he would come, his presence would be known even though he was going to depart, but his presence would only be known to a group of people and not known to another group of people. So he asked that question, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And the answer Jesus gives, again, what I'm doing is showing you where I get my main thought. I always want you to see where the preacher is not creating his own ideas. That it's being exposed from the text. Jesus answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is emphasizing that there's two groups of people in his mind. The one group of people I'm affectionately calling you. If you, he says to this group of people. And the other group of people is the world. There are two groups of people being contrasted in this whole dialogue. There's a group of people that will know and receive the Holy Spirit. And there's another group that won't. So I pick up on that language in this passage. And I'm suggesting to you there's a group that will receive the Holy Spirit whom Jesus calls you. So I'm going to call them the you group. And there's a group that will not recognize the Holy Spirit and not get the Holy Spirit. And that's the world. And that is going to answer Judas's question. And then not only is, are we going to unpack that, I just gave you what my main first point is, which group receives the Holy Spirit? Which group is characterized as receiving the Holy Spirit? And the second thing is, I've, second main point I've created is, is what I've called just Holy Spirit 101. This is entry-level instruction on the Holy Spirit. 
Keep in mind, we are way beyond this. Some of you have had maybe even taken classes and done Bible studies and, and, and all this. This is a group of people who really haven't, really haven't grasped the essence of the Holy Spirit's work in this new covenant setting. They have heard of the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. They've heard much through, like the music we sang today, that there is a river, there's a refreshment coming, there is a river that makes the city of God glad. They've heard lots of concepts like that. But to co-locate the Holy Spirit as to another helper like Jesus is, this is new. So we're going to look at it through their eyes and say, what, what is this threshold knowledge they received? Because it may also temper our thinking of the Holy Spirit. But first of all, let's look at the two groups that are contrasted. And I draw your attention to the you group, the group that has promised the reception of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 15. And what I'm going to, the way I'm going to handle this, I'm just going to point out certain verses and show you the characteristic of this you group. And of course, the obvious application is, I need to ask myself, am I in that group? Are you in that group? Which group are you in? Are we in? The first characteristic of the you group in verse 15 is they love Jesus and their life is evidenced by obedience. Their love for Jesus is evidenced by obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I really don't think this is rocket science. It might sound kind of dogmatic and, and uh, rather black and white and exclusive, but I, I don't think this is rocket science. I think that those of you listening online, those of us here who are parents, we, we, we have similar thoughts to our children as they're growing up. We say similar things. You know, Johnny, Mary, if, if you really love mommy and daddy, you're, you'll take out the garbage. You'll clean up your room. We, we know innately that it is a contradiction to say that you love and honor and respect someone and care nothing about what they say to you. Does that make sense? Like, this isn't crazy. How horrible it would be for a spouse to say they love and honor and cherish their spouse and care nothing about what makes their spouse happy, what they care about, what, 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 how to honor their spouse. So Jesus is just saying what is absolutely clear to most in society. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Your love for me is evidenced by obedience. And that's the first characteristic of a group that will be the gracious recipients of the Holy Spirit. Another characteristic is found in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And notice now we have an addition. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
In a sense, Jesus is saying, in addition to loving and obeying me, you are going to have the promise that the Father's love is directed towards you, and I, in the Father, am also directing my love towards you, and I will manifest myself to you. Now, I ask myself the question, well, what is it that the you group sees in Jesus that the world does not see? What is that special revelation that Jesus shows to the you group that the world doesn't get? And my mind went back to John chapter 4 when Jesus was addressing the Samaritan woman at the well. You might want to turn back there. I, I actually skipped over these verses maybe too fast when I taught on it. I love this verse. I won't recount the context. You know this Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan at the well. In verse 10 he says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you. Jesus is saying to this woman, if you knew who I am and what I can do for you, you would ask for me. That, isn't that something that the you group sees in Jesus that the world doesn't see? Isn't that something that, and I'll quit playing word games with you, that the church, that Christians see in Jesus? They see exactly who he is. How many in the world today would say things that Jesus was, seemed to be a very good person he seemed to establish a very good civil uh, way of living life and being kind and loving to everyone. They would say that, some would say that he was a, uh, seemed to be a good teacher, loved poor people, loved the marginalized in society. But they don't never see him as Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they never understand that he came to give them eternal life. And Jesus is saying to this group of disciples, the you group, what sets you apart from the world is you really know who I am. I will manifest myself to you. You will really know who I am and you will really know what I have brought to offer you. A third characteristic of this you group that I find in this passage is found in verse 23. We see in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Notice the emphasis on we. Now this is something I'm going to say again later, but uh, this seems to be one of those threshold entry-level uh, uh, inst uh, uh, instruction of the Holy Spirit that bypasses us so often. Do you understand that when 
a person is given the gift of the Holy Spirit upon faith in Jesus Christ, yes, indeed, it is right to say the Holy Spirit indwells us. But do you understand that when you say that, you're saying that the entire triune God indwells you? We can somehow look down at, at that subject and, and actually, in, a, in kind of a false way, divide up the Trinity. And our minds can somehow put Jesus somewhere and God the Father somewhere, but in me is the Holy Spirit. But what is being promised to this you group is the entire triune God is going to dwell. Not, not only the Holy Spirit, but my Father and me, Jesus says. I don't know what that does to you, but it, my mind just spins. The sovereign, immutable, unchanging, eternal, absolute God of the universe promises to make His home in your life. I mean, certainly it's a glorious thing to say the Holy Spirit dwells in. Please don't, don't say I'm minimizing that. I'm just saying... Do you ever stop and think that the fullness of the Godhead through the Spirit, through the Son, through the Father are making their lives, your life, their home? This you group that gets the Spirit is also in verse 28, a group that exalts rejoices in the fact that Jesus Christ is glorified. Bringing glory to the risen Savior is a unique characteristic of Christian believers that the world does not possess. The world possesses the ability to be very grateful for blind eyes that are able to see. For broken limbs that are healed. For hungry souls who are fed food. The world is very able to rejoice in all the good things and beneficial things that God gives to human beings. But it's only the church that finds the ultimate rejoicing in the glorification of Jesus Christ the Son. You can converse with anyone you want, and that will never be the high point of their praise if they're not Christians. It's something unique within true Christianity within the group that receives the Holy Spirit, that the ultimate joy and satisfaction that we have in our hearts is the fact that our Savior, who came to earth as a servant and was obedient even unto death, is now highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. It's a unique characteristic of the you group. And lastly, in verse 19, 
this group, this you group, will live forever because Jesus lives, he says. This, you, this, this group that's going to receive the Holy Spirit will live forever because Jesus lives forever. So this group that receives the Spirit can be described as obedient lovers of Christ who experience the mutual love and indwelling of the Godhead, who rejoice and live their lives exalting the risen, glorified Savior, and who will live forever with Him ad forever and ever and ever. They get the Holy Spirit. The world is different though. Everyone else is the world. Everybody who doesn't fit into that category belongs to the world. We're told in verse 17, the world cannot see, hear, or even know the Holy Spirit. The aberrations that are evident within the world of spirituality is absolutely bizarre. There is every kind of attempt to mimic the Holy Spirit's work in the world today. Every kind of attempt to mimic it, and it just falls so short. Check out any kind of discussion on the New Age movement, on anybody talking about spirituality, anybody reading tarot cards, anybody telling your future by looking at the lines on your hands, any group that's gathering together to kind of uh, conjure up some sort of a spiritual environment, and it all ends up with just silliness. The world can't know who the real Holy Spirit is and what the real Holy Spirit does. Verse 19, this group will not recognize the risen, glorified Jesus. Now contextually, Jesus is speaking to those in Palestine at that time, and his thoughts, I would think, uh, go to the fact that when I die and rise again, there's going to be a whole lot of people who don't even recognize me as Jesus. Is that not been true? Even today, there are those who try to debunk the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the appearances that were made were certainly not Jesus of Nazareth. But most importantly, and finally, the final characteristic I find in this text about the world is the, this group neither loves nor keeps or recognizes the words of Jesus as coming from the Father. I get that in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, the world does not recognize the words of Jesus as coming from God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, who is always true. One would wonder about people who claim to be Christians, who claim to to hold to some Christian faith and yet live their lives in ways that are completely contrary to the Bible, one would wonder if they read the words of Jesus and even attribute divinity to those words. 
So we have two groups. The first group, the you group, is the group where Jesus makes this promise in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. Please understand, beloved, that only those in Christ are given the Holy Spirit. It is the mark of a Christian, according to Romans chapter 8. He who does not have the Spirit is not in Christ. What about the Holy Spirit? What are some of the things that we learn at this entry-level instruction of the Holy Spirit? Keep in mind, Jesus is going to teach us a lot more as these chapters unfold. But let me suggest to you five things if you take notes. Five elementary Holy Spirit 101 type things that we should know. <clears throat> the first I've already mentioned. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is in fact the triune God making his home in believers. Verse 23. To the you who received the Spirit, Jesus promises the we will come and make our home with you. Paul picks this up in Colossians uh, 2, verses 9 and 10. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. You might want to turn there just to see this. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. You see the logic Paul's making? That in Christ is the fullness of the deity. And when Christ is in you, you are a person whereby the Godhead Himself has made His home in your life. We should be stunned at this reality, as I said earlier. It has stunned me, and I just don't even know what to do with it. It's so huge and so magnificent. It's so majestic that the entire Godhead, this perfect, harmonious diversity and unity that is absolute in all its essence, who is the creator of the world, sustainer, eternal, immutable, perfectly holy, perfect in all he does, has chosen to make his home in your life. Secondly, we learn that when the Holy the first is when the Holy Spirit indwells, in fact the whole Godhead indwells. Secondly, we learn that this indwelling is forever. Do you see verse 16? And I will ask the Father and He'll give you another Helper to be with you forever. One of, the, one of the idiosyncrasies of the New Covenant is that where all the Old Testament saints, those who put their faith in the promised Messiah, were certainly 
changed in their hearts by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They were certainly equipped and directed by the Holy Spirit. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the one thing, the promise that they did not have then was the promise of the Holy Spirit living within forever. And you and I as believers in Christ have that promise forever. I won't take that rabbit trail. There's a rabbit trail there that's real easy for a Calvinist to go down. So, But just saying that, I think I've said enough. When Jesus Christ, who is speaking on behalf of the Father, says, and I will ask the Father to give you the Holy Spirit who will dwell with you forever, I kind of take that literally. Number three. Got away from that one. The indwelling ministry is actually a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. I get that in verse 16. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. Another helper. These men have had a helper with them. Ever since Jesus called them to Himself, they have had a helper with them. They have had someone with them who was helping them. But now, according to Jesus, when I depart, you're going to have another helper. And I take from that, and you tell me if, if you don't see the same thing. You can test this. I take from that that the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers is similar to what Jesus has been doing all along with his disciples. Teaching, leading, guiding, directing, caring, looking after, nurturing. Would you not find the same conclusion? Now the word used here, parakletos in the Greek, is used throughout the New Testament relating to the Holy Spirit. And every time it's used, there's a different nuance. And so you have to go to the context. In other words, sometimes the Holy Spirit is portrayed as an advocate, one who defends his people. Some as an encourager, one who gives encouragement, courage to do what is right. But here, I think the ESV has chosen a very good word, a helper. One who comes alongside as Jesus did and helped his people. You and I are promised that as Christians, that not only will the entire Godhead be, uh, find a home in our lives, and not only will it be eternal, it, but it, it will be as if Jesus of Nazareth was still with us except by the Spirit. And we can anticipate the same leadership and teaching and comfort and, and instruction that Christ gave his disciples. I've heard it said, I may have thought it myself, it's not a bizarre thought. Wouldn't it have been nice to live in the time of Christ and to walk with Christ and pick corn in the field and, and sit on the hillside and listen to him teach? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You and I can experience that same thing. 
For I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper to be with you forever. It's a good question to ask. Do you experience the Holy Spirit that way? Number four. Verse 18 reads this way, I will not leave you as orphans. That word was particularly written there by the Holy Spirit. It reminds us that this is the entry level. This is the, the, uh, the, the 101 teaching that the New Testament is going to expand upon as it talks about the fact that the people that receive the Spirit, Christians, are people who were orphans but are now adopted into a family. The doctrine of adoption is being alluded here. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans 8, just where Paul picks this up. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit. And most English translations capitalize that. I believe correctly. The Spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Jesus is saying to his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them, one of the blessings will be that he will be a guarantor, a guarantee of the fact that they are adopted children of the Most High God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1, you need to turn there, all pick up this idea that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of adoption. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, that is the adoptive paperwork, the legal paperwork that says you are a child of God. Again, I used the term earlier. The mark of the Christian is the indwelling Spirit of God. It's proof positive that you are in God's family. And Paul will go on, and we won't go there this morning, but Paul will go on to say, if that's true, then you are joint heirs with Jesus. Think of the privileges of, of adoption. Before the late Dr. J.I. Parker passed away, he was known to say that the most precious doctrine in the Bible for Christians is the doctrine of adoption. The fact that we have been called out of the world and have been given a right standing in the family of God. And if that's true, we are joint heirs with Jesus. All that Jesus did and inherited, we now become, we get to join in in that blessing. And of course, the ultimate inheritance is, is life with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all the saints of all ages forever and ever and ever. According to Peter, that inheritance is guaranteed and is waiting for you and I. 
Oh, there's so much here. You can see why I call this Holy Spirit 101. This is just entry level. It just sends us into all kinds of rooms where we could spend days and days meditating and learning. But Jesus is saying that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the mark that you're a Christian and it's the evidence that you're a child of God. And you belong to God's family. God is your father. Jesus is your brother. And all that Jesus earned for you and I on Calvary, all the inheritance belongs to us. And the proof positive of that is that he has given us the Holy Spirit. The fifth point. Let me, re re let me just recap. Number one. The Holy Spirit is the triune God living within. Number two, it's forever. He's there forever. Number three, the continuing ministry of Jesus is in fact what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. Number four, it's the seal of adoption. And number five, Jesus makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit abiding in you and I is an experiential relational event. Believers can experience intimately the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 makes that very clear. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. You know Him. The word know being used in the Bible most of the time is not an intellectual knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It is totally appropriate for me to say to you, can you describe for me your experience of the Holy Spirit? That is not a question. That is not a question that is simply left to people who claim to be charismatic or claim to be Pentecostal or claim to be anything like that. That's a question you and I can ask and answer. Do you, this morning, are you one that could say, I have experience and I experience the intimate work of the Holy Spirit? Now, of course, there's lots of wackos in the world. That's another topic. If you ever want some help in this area, dig up an old book by Jonathan Edwards called Religious Affections, and he'll explain very clearly the kind of manifestations and things that you see aren't necessarily proof that that's the Holy Spirit, but there are some identifiable clear evidences that you and I can have an experience with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus starts us down the road of learning some of those. And the main, the main experience that you and I can have with the Holy Spirit is found right away in verse 17. The Holy Spirit is the revelation and the direction of truth. 
He is the eliminator, illuminator, I should say. Well, that was a terrible slip of the tongue. He is an illuminator of truth. So I asked the worship team to teach us a new song. I wanted you to understand that. That truth can be evidenced in part in creation. Truth ultimately is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. But by God's condescending love and grace, the Holy Spirit has inspired, and there's a promise in here to these men. Sometimes you might wonder, how in the world did these men write the New Testament, some of them 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died and rose again, how did they remember this? Jesus said, guess what? The Holy Spirit will come and he will bring to your mind all the things that I have taught you. We have here the promise of God's truth as written by the Holy Spirit, moving men of old to write. And it's absolutely without error. The original documents are absolutely free of error. This is authoritative. This is, this is for you and I. And the main way that Christians experience the Holy Spirit is right here. The revelation of truth in God's Word. Do you experience the Holy Spirit through His Word? You say, well, Jim, I, I prefer to experience the Holy Spirit and His work in my life as I look at all the beautiful flowers and all the wonderful things in nature. Well, there's some truth there. But it'll only take you to the place of knowing that there's a God and you're a sinner. In other words, you're not God. That's where, that's where natural revelation stops. You go out in the bush and say, well, that's where I experience God. Well, the only thing you will learn there is that there's a God, and you're not, and you have a problem. You need the Holy Spirit to open up this book to you as to your solution. The first thing and most important truth of the Spirit of God indwelling in the life of believers is that He's the Spirit of truth and He uses the sword of the Spirit to illuminate truth to us and enable us to live for Him. When you think of experiencing the Holy Spirit, I would want you and I to first and foremost say, I experience the Holy Spirit because He leads me and guides me in truth. Truth that is founded on this Word. If you think in terms of other things, you will be sadly misled and you will fall into danger. Jesus introduces the third person of the Trinity to these men the Spirit of Truth. Let us do likewise as we think of experiencing the Holy Spirit. Part of leadership in truth is that the Holy Spirit also leads us in holiness. 
I say to you, my church, I say, I'm a pastor who experiences an ongoing, daily, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. You have every right to ask me, well, Jim, how's your walk in holiness? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. If we were to read further in the New Testament, we would find that he's called the Spirit of Holiness. He's the one who leads men and women in the battle of sin. In Romans 8.13, we're told to mortify, kill sin by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, we're told that the Christian life is a life of the Spirit against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit. If I were to confess to you the reality of this Holy Spirit in my life, if I were to say to you, yes, I'm a man who experiences God by His Spirit, I know His voice, I know what He does in my life, I, can, I, I feel the Spirit of God, you have every right to ask, then how is he helping you kill sin, Jim? This is primary level stuff. This is kindergarten Holy Spirit teaching. In verse 27, we have another important experience of the Holy Spirit. Along with the promise that God... Jesus says, my Father will give you the Spirit. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Notice the contradiction. Not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Christian, are you experiencing the peace of the Holy Spirit this morning? will provide peace for you. They'll provide different methodologies and different things to make you contented and happy. But Jesus says here that one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian is provide peace. Provide peace. Not as the world gives. This is not a peace with God. You know Romans 5.1 if you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. That's, that's what happens when you become a Christian. What Jesus is talking about is the ongoing daily experience of the Christian life. My peace I live with you, leave with you. This is experiential, subjective, in, intimate, personal peace. It's the peace of God that passes all understanding for one whose mind is stayed on Him. So again, when I said to you that Jesus promises you can know the Spirit, you can experience the Spirit, I wonder if these things were the first things that came to your mind. That the Spirit of God is the Spirit who leads us in truth. He's the Spirit of God who leads us in holiness, and He's the Spirit of God who grants us peace. A settled contentment. Do you experience God's Spirit that way? 
And just to conclude this section, having said these words of comfort, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. I'm reading verse 30. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus is going to leave the upper room. He's going to go down outside. He's going to go into Gethsemane. He's anticipating the personification of evil in the form of Judas. That Satan-filled man to meet him with guards and arrest him. But he says they have no claim on him. There's no guilt in Jesus, no sin in Jesus, there's no shame in Jesus. There's nothing that Satan can do to cause Christ to be found guilty of anything ever. And he assures his disciples of that. It's, as, it's tantamount to saying, I'm, I'm, I'm free of sin. What's going to happen to me is not because I'm a sinner. He actually says what's going to happen to me is just because I love the Father and I'm going in obedience to the Father. Do you see how this section is bracketed? Jesus starts off by saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he ends the section by saying, I love the Father, so I'm going to obey him. The death of Jesus Christ was not the death of a guilty sinner. The death of Jesus Christ was not even the death of a martyr. The death of Jesus Christ was an act of obedience to God the Father. An act of obedience to God the Father. Well, John 15 is going to give us a lot more about our relationship with Jesus Christ. John 16 is going to give us a lot more about the Holy Spirit. But as we close today, I want you to consider the instruction of our Lord that you have heard. I know it could be applied different ways. We certainly could apply it by asking the question, are you in the you group or the world group? If you're in the you group, there's so much encouragement and comfort here. There's so much to strengthen and fortify you in your life. There's so much we could do to apply this. But if you don't mind, if I can just be personal, just as we close. As I meditated and contemplated what I would say today, I couldn't help but think, along with David who said in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. Think for a second, beloved, 
Who are you and I that the triune God of the universe would decide to make his home in your life? <laughs> he wouldn't even let David build a tabernacle for him. And the way I left this was thinking in terms of who am I? Who am I that, I, that God in his mercy would choose to come and indwell my life and your lives? Who are we that we would be adopted into his family forever eternally main co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ and given a guarantee of an eternal inheritance with him. What can you and I point to that says, this is what I am and this is what I've done to deserve this? Can you come up with anything? And who are we that in the midst of, of a pandemic, in the midst of a world in crisis in the midst of families, including my own, that are dealing with so much pain and grief. Who are we that he would promise the peace of the Holy Spirit to be ours? Who has deserved such grace? Who, who has deserved such mercy? realized this week more than I've ever realized before that the mark of true Christian maturity is directly proportionate to how much you and I make of this doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. be practical as you walk into the co-op to buy your groceries do you realize that you're carrying with you the triune God of the universe who has made his home in your life do you make a lot of that Realize as you lay your head down on your pillow at night that the Almighty God who looked at a world of darkness and voidness and all he said was let there be light there was light is at home with you on your bed in the darkness of night could also use moral examples that Paul chose to use. Is it quite okay to watch that movie with the thrice holy God making his home in your life? Is it okay to sin knowing that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
or in my life. A man who's with the Lord, I'll end on a cute, funny, but convicting story. A man who's with the Lord now, who was involved for many years in the Canadian Revival Fellowship. A man who laid in the hospital bed beside my own Uncle Clarence. And we have every, belief, every reason to believe that he led him to the Lord. It was a man by the name of Bill McLeod. Bill worked with the Revival Fellowship and preached across Western Canada. One day he and another person from the Canadian Revival Fellowship, that's the group that John McGregor went left here and went with, were driving to a set of meetings and they were late. So the guy was speeding. And the young preacher turned to Bill in the passenger seat and said, Well, Mr. McLeod, it's a good thing that we have God with us so we can speed and get there on time. And Bill turned to him and said, Young man, the moment you decided to break the law, God got up and left. You're on your own. see, somehow, the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit fashioned the choices that Bill McLeod would make. So I want to ask you, if I'm right, if Christian maturity is based on how much the doctrine of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us shapes and fashions and controls our lives and our thinking, are you a mature Christian? And don't you want to be? I started with a prayer from a hymn. I'm going to end with a prayer from a hymn. Would you bow your heads and hear these words? Breathe on us, breath of God. Fill us with life anew. That we might love without us love. And do what thou wouldst do. God's people said, Amen.